Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. Some of you may be looking at this episode's title, and if you're familiar with this tree, thinking to yourself, really? Her? Or perhaps, did I open the wrong podcast? Here's the thing. This week, I was originally going to talk about the Western balsam poplar and the science behind tree genetics. Turns out tree genetics is a pretty complicated science, and I got kind of overwhelmed in my research and started to get frustrated. So, I switched gears and instead harnessed that frustration to write about one of my least favorite trees. So if you're expecting my normal chill positive vibes, then I apologize. They'll return next week. But, let me start over. Spring is right around the corner in the Northern Hemisphere, and nothing says springtime like flowers. One of the first trees in the United States to flower is a cultivated varietal of a Chinese pear tree known today as the Bradford pear. These flowers are pretty and white, and they smell terrible. Yet they are planted throughout urban areas across the U.S., and the smell of these flowers is just the first on my laundry list of grievances about this tree. So I'm going to take a few deep calming breaths, and we're going to talk about why this incredibly common street tree is so terrible, and whose bright idea it was to plague America with this curse. Eight, nine, ten. Okay, I'm good. I'm calm again. Um, let's talk about what this tree looks like. Like I said, the Bradford pear is a cultivated tree that is commonly planted on the sides of roads and in neighborhoods, so it's meant to be attractive. It doesn't get very tall, it can reach heights of up to 50 feet, but is more often kept around 30 feet or so, or around 10 meters tall. You wouldn't want it to grow into power lines or anything, and I know a thing or two about tree trimming along power lines from work experience. The tree has this natural symmetry to it, and is very shapely. It typically grows a nice round crown. The leaves are mostly circular, they're glossy and dark green, very nice for providing shade. This is a pear tree, so the fruits are pears, but not quite what you may picture. They're very small orbs, around the size of my fingernail, Which is wonderful for a street tree, they don't have large fruits that would litter an urban area, like, say, an Osage orange, for those who know this tree in the eastern United States. The flowers are very pretty and white, and they tend to be among the first things to bloom in spring, so it's there to pull us out of our winter depression. But like I said, they smell god-awful. I think personally that they smell like bad fish. That's what my nose is picking up, like the dumpster behind a fish market. I have known others to be a bit more vulgar in their descriptions of what these flowers smell like. Whatever your nose is picking up, I've never heard someone claim that they like the smell. If you think they smell good at all, you do not deserve a nose. Sure, maybe pollinators are into this. The baobab flower emits a sulfury smell when it blooms, but that guy only sticks around for 15 hours. And I'm not a pollinator, I'm a human being. The wood of this tree is also terrible, and I'm not saying, oh, it's not good lumber. I mean the trunks and branches of these trees are very brittle and prone to shattering. Their weakness is obvious when storms roll in because these branches are no doubt coming right off and just littering our streets. For those states that get ice instead of snow in the winter, 
water getting into the tree and freezing will make it explode. So where did we get this abomination? The Bradford pear is a cultivar, or cultivated variety, of the calorie pear, Pyrus caloriana, which means we bred this into existence. It was named for Joseph Calory, a French missionary who discovered the tree in China in 1858. Pyrus is the pear genus, it's the Latin name for pear. The Bradford pear is in the rose family, specifically in the subfamily of pome fruits, so it's closely related to the apple, amelanchier, and rowan. We use the Bradford pear mostly as an ornamental to decorate our streets, parks, neighborhoods, and college campuses. And while it usually looks nice in those settings, it takes on a different form in its native range in China. It's small, shrubby, and thorny, not unlike the uncultivated species of pomegranate. And if in the US it is distributed by birds, it tends to revert back to its original growth habit that is seen in China. These ornamentals are supposed to have sterile fruit, so this doesn't happen. These trees come to be in a process known as grafting, where you take a part of one tree and attach it to another tree so it takes on certain characteristics from the tree part. Grafting is also the thing humans do when they don't want to be bald, so they attach hairs from other parts of the body to the head, encouraging it to grow normally. However, grafting isn't 100% successful, and sometimes Bradford pears will stubbornly send up shoots from its roots and produce flowers that, when pollinated, become viable fruit. And while they are inedible for us, birds love them, and they will eat them and poop the seeds into less managed areas. From there, they aggressively spread on their own and are now considered invasive. Right now, the Bradford pear grows in 29 US states, from the east coast to the west. City planners and arborists in recent years are becoming more vocal about what a terrible idea these trees are, and some cities are doing what they can to remove Bradford pears where they can. But whose idea was this in the first place? What is the story behind this curse on urban forestry? Our story begins in California in the early 1900s. The San Joaquin Valley was a hot spot for producing pears that folks around the country could buy from grocery stores. But there was a disease known as fire blight that threatened to completely wipe out these trees. Luckily or not, there was a plant scientist in Oregon by the name of Frank Reimer who was studying a calorie pear that had come from China, and he came to the realization that this species was resistant to the fire blight. He postulated that this species could be used as rootstock for the European pear that was grown for food in California to give those trees that disease resistance. But he needed a lot more wild seeds from China to properly study them. Plans were drawn up and in 1916 the Department of Agriculture sent explorer Frank Meyer to China to collect a bunch of pear seeds. And I know these two names are obnoxiously similar, so here's how we're telling them apart. Frank Reimer is going to be referred to as Frank the Plant Guy, and Frank Meyer is going to be Frank the Adventure Man. Does this sound too silly? Well, I don't care, because I hate the Bradford pair, and I'm not taking any of this seriously. Anyway, the trip started out weird. Frank the Adventure Man spent a lot of time in Beijing, and sent back a bunch of seeds from pines, walnuts, and chestnuts. And the Department of Agriculture replied, This is not what we asked you to do. Go into the wilderness and find us some pear seeds. So Frank the Adventure Man headed up the Yangtze River and found a bunch of calorie pears. But he wrote about how crappy these trees were and how small the fruit production was. 
He wanted to wait and find better stock, but for the most part, that's how these trees grow, so I'm not sure what he was expecting. He still went ahead and had some team members start gathering seeds, and he got around 25 pounds of them. But that's when Frank the Adventure Man hit another snag, because around that same time, China was trying to transition from an empire to a republic, and instead of that happening, the country got split into a bunch of factions ruled by warlords. So Frank the Adventure Man ended up getting separated from his seeds while trying to avoid getting shot for three months. Finally, in May of 1918, Frank the Adventure Man got his seeds and hopped on a boat towards Shanghai, where he planned on shipping them back to America. The seeds eventually made it there, but Frank the Adventure Man didn't. When he had boarded the riverboat, Frank the Adventure Man had been having bad stomach issues, and his mental state was not looking good. He was reportedly very depressed, which is understandable because this whole trip sounds awful. He told his servant that he was having dreams about his father and his old friends and started talking about weird omens. Then one night he got up to go to the restroom and was never seen alive again. His body was fished out of the river in a nearby settlement four days later. These seeds eventually made it back to America to be studied, but at what cost? Frank the Plant Guy, we're back on him now, continued to send more people to China to get him more seed and planted them in his study orchard. 30 years later, and we're in the early 1950s now, one of those planted trees had grown into something not terrible. It was a sturdy tree rather than a shrub, it didn't have thorns, and it was resistant to pests and disease. Also, its flowers were so pretty. A famous horticulturalist named John L. Creech saw this tree and decided that was the perfect tree to plant on the sides of roads in Washington, D.C. In 1954, he planted almost 200 of these trees that he named Bradford in the D.C. suburb University Park. And people loved them. By 1960, nurseries were desperate to get their hands on the Bradford pear. And you might be wondering right about now, did these flowers not smell at that point? I have to imagine that they did, and people just didn't care? Which to me seems pretty characteristic of what culture in America was like in the 1950s and 60s. We liked these flowers because they were pretty and white. You just had to ignore the smell. Over the next few decades, these trees became more commonplace to plant around the country. On top of that, additional calorie pear varieties were created that produced more upright trees or trees that had a more columnar shape depending on what sort of urban design you were going for. This is what really caused that sterility issue. Most of the time, the varieties weren't able to reproduce with themselves, but these different varieties crossing with each other actually could produce that viable fruit. This is what the birds would get a hold of and spread the aggressive offspring across the countryside. Since entering the 21st century, we've started to realize the damage this cultivation has wrought in our country. And in the last decade, foresters have started efforts to remove these trees and control their wild spread. It's a tough two-fronted issue we face with this varietal, and getting them out of our urban areas is definitely going to be a struggle. There are so many trees to remove, and it's going to be hard to replace them. These are a lot of already mature trees, and the early white flowers are often distinct features of city design. This is going to be something that takes time and money. Most of the information in this episode comes from a Washington Post article in 2018 covering this tree's tumultuous history. To quote this article, Generations yet to be born will come to know this tree and hate it. 
Folks, I already hate it. And if you don't, you simply must not live in a part of the world where the smell of fish dumpster plagues your springtime nostrils. The future is now, and it's time to break up with this tree. Thanks for listening to me rant today, everyone. It started out as a rant and then turned into me being really cheerfully sassy and passive-aggressive. But regardless of what it was, uh, it was very therapeutic. I feel really good right now. But next week, I will be back with your regularly scheduled chill vibes and positivity. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you have the time, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their stuff on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Bandcamp. Wherever good music exists, they are there. My cover art is by Brittany Burnett. Find her incredible photography on Instagram at BoomerangBrit. Find me on Twitter or Facebook at MyFavoriteTrees and get updates on future episodes and extra goodies. If you'd like to thank me back, you can do so by donating to your favorite sustainable organization, some of which are listed on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug.